quick thank you to our sponsors for making this podcast possible. They keep this show free to listen to. This episode is sponsored by Byheart. Byheart features a patent protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Their formula includes the most abundant protein, alpha-lac, found in breast milk, as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum. Byheart is an easy-to-digest formula, which includes prebiotics and an 80-20 whey-to-casein ratio like an early breast milk, making it great for a newborn's digestive system. Byheart is the only U.S.-made infant formula made with certified clean ingredients, including organic, grass-fed, whole milk, not skim. What it doesn't have is soy, corn syrup, GMOs, or palm oil. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast. Use code PEACE for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. When our kids are born, we have expectations as to how our family will interact. What we certainly aren't ready for are the struggles we encounter with the people we love the most. We are here for the parent who feels like they've tried it all, for the parent who feels like they have to yell to be heard, for the parent who is tired of timeouts and kids fighting all day. We are here for you. We believe when parents feel supported and heard, they are able to come to parenting more centered. We offer tools to navigate the messiness of life with kids. We are Peace in Parenting. Welcome back to another Peace and Parenting podcast, and I want to introduce a really lovely guest who we have here today, Dr. Vanessa LaPointe, and if you don't um, know her, you have to get to know her and read her lovely books and follow her Instagram and just glean all you can from everything that she knows about children and parenting. So welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are and um, what you do? So I am a psychologist. I live in Vancouver, Canada, and I've been uh, practicing in the field now for almost 20 years. My area of specialty is children, but I don't actually ever work with children. I work with their parents because that's where the true power lies in order to make the world go round. So um, that's my professional side. Uh, my personal side is that I'm also a mom. And um, I can't think now who said this quote, something about we are here not to be humble, but to be humbled. Yeah. <laughs> and I really do think, you know, as a psychologist doing the work that I am doing, uh, being a mother and also on many days, feeling as though I'm in the trenches alongside all y'all um, has really allowed me to go deeper into understanding children from the inside out um, and making sense of that um, in my own family and also with all of the families that I have the uh, privilege of working with. Yeah. Um, and I've taken those things, put them together into a couple of books, and here we are. I love your books. They're so good. They're, if anybody hasn't read them, they're anecdotal. So it's like you get to actually read how she's worked with clients and where those clients are coming from. And they just, they're really accessible. So I really love your books. I, I love how you say humbled. I was just thinking about that today and how, um, you know, I make a practice of trying to apologize to my children, you know, really do apologize to my children when I've done something wrong. But I remember at first it was really hard. And it's a very humbling experience to just own your mistakes. And I thought that this was, I don't think you can get it, this experience and this learning growth in very many other places like you can in parenting. 
Yeah, and that really is the ultimate gift of parenthood, isn't it? We we think we have children to feel this sort of, um, you know, consistent state of blissful abundance, and then we realize, oh snap, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really hard. <laughs> yeah, there is no b- b- unbounding blissfulness. I'll say that. So we're going to talk a little bit about discipline and kind of what your take on discipline is and discuss the ideas behind maybe conventional discipline as opposed to the way in which you teach it in your practice to your parents. So tell us, what's your take on the idea of discipline? The idea of discipline uh, sort of took on the flavor of the pop culture all around us and has Um, morphed according to a lot of what works for adults, but very little of what works for children. And when we get into the science of child development, there's a few things that become uh, abundantly clear with our um, access to contemporary data. One of those things is that what children need more than anything is connection. Right. Emotional, deep relational connection. And so when children have access to connection, then development goes along exactly as nature intended. So that's the number one thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing that has um, become very, very clear to us is that children are children. (laughs) (laughs) I realize it sounds like a very simple statement. Uh, But when we dig into the sort of uh, bias that exists out in our culture, um, children aren't often allowed to be children. We expect them by downward extension to uphold the expectations that we will have of them when they become adults right now. (laughs) We want, you know, four-year-olds to share. Well, four-year-olds can't share, really. Well, well we I know I can't share sometimes. <laughs> I mean, we expect them to do these things that uh, many adults can't regulate your emotions. Right. I mean, good luck. We're, yeah. We have a bunch of adults running around who can't regulate their emotions. Exactly. And so um, we have to sort of make our peace with the idea that child development is a real thing and honor children for exactly the ones that they are. So when you put together those two things, number one, that connection is universally the most important need of all children everywhere. Without it, as part of a social species, they die. Um, They can't actually survive in the absence of connection. And you layer that up with the reality of child development and that children are, in fact, children with as yet by perfect design, uh, immature brains. Um, Then we come to this place of having to reconcile why then are we so adamant about squashing the behavior in ways that are very controlling and if we're going to get really honest about it punitive mm-hmm. so when we then do the deep dive into the these sort of go-to discipline strategies that a lot of uh, us grew up with and thus now use as parents we tend to parent as we were parented when we look at things like I mean I hope at 2020 we are over the idea that smacking or spanking children is a helpful thing to do in discipline because it certainly is not so having put that one to rest what we're left with then are things like timeouts Mm -hmm. and consequencing Mm -hmm. and Um, removal of privileges and using reward systems like star charts or earning time towards screen time or whatever it is. 
And when you drill down underneath each of those discipline strategies, what you will see is that they all have at their heart an experience of emotional and relational disconnection for the child. So the reason the timeout works, if we want to call it that, is that the child, because their number one need is connection, remember they die without it, so they know subconsciously that it has to exist or they are not okay. And you put them over in a timeout. What have we taken away from them? Connection. That's right. And so the child now will be compelled to shelve their behavior, in fact, their development in the service of the relationship. So does it work? Yeah. Yeah. All is squash behavior works. Yeah. But what to what cost? That's exactly it. At what cost? And then we recognize that it's a sacrificial play. Yeah. No, it's so it's it's hard because when you say it like that, it makes complete sense. And yet our entire society has been conditioned in a way that that's how we operate without even questioning it because that's just how we operate because we want to get the behavior and so we do whatever we can to get the good behavior yeah and that use of the word good like think about how often you hear people say things like good girl good boy from very young ages mm-hmm. and it, it just goes to shine a light on how we have conflated this uh, bizarre of morality with child development yeah. and then our our children end up experiencing shame mm-hmm. for being the very ones they are. It would be like you experiencing shame every day for having blonde hair. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so it's so when you say it like that, it makes complete sense. And yet I still in my head, I know better, but I'm still in my head. I'm thinking, how am I going to get this kid to turn their computer off? Like, I, you know, like in the moment you don't realize, like, I need to get connected That's the only way I can do it. But that's a harder, more untangible way that we haven't been taught. Yeah. And our brains, our minds, our hearts and souls were formed by the environment that we were raised in. And then we grow up. So the environment formed our mind as children. Then we grow up. This is a quote from Dan Siegel. And we become adults. Mm -hmm. And then the mind formed for us in our childhood now is forming the environment around us in which our children grow, which is why, you know, I've studied, I studied um, psychology at university for 13 years, and my eldest son's about to turn 17. So you, so I've been at this parenting gig for a while. I've been working in the field for a long time. I st- I've studied everything there is to study. Mm-hmm. And even I, on an almost daily basis. Yeah don't land at the finish line with this stuff because the the longest road you will ever travel is the one from your head to your heart and being able to be this is very very different from knowing this well I think that's where people fall short and where we all do where I do too where I end up yelling where I don't want to when I know better because I get triggered back into this old mindset that just takes over my complete psyche and I don't I'm I'm gone You are. And you become age regressed, right? You become a five-year-old version of yourself. And it's a knee-jerk thing. You don't even know that it's happened until it's happening. And what I have noticed with myself is I have, you know, uh, done my own personal growth work over the years alongside studying all of these things. At least now I have this kind of like 
extra pair of eyes that hang out over top of me. And as I'm having the yelly shutty moment with my kids, I'm Mm -hmm. watching myself with my own mind. And I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) look at you, girl. Okay, take a breath. Well, that's it. I think you can like I think you do form a new neural pathway when you start to do things differently. But it takes 3,565 times before you're like, oh, I I can't breathe. This is not an emergency. Like Dr. Laura Markham says, this is not an emergency. And I think I really, in those moments, always felt like, no, this is an emergency. This child has to do as I say, or I am going to have an emotional emergency. But when I really stepped back, I was like, wait, these are we're just having an argument. Like, it's okay. And think about where you learned that it was an emotional emergency. (laughs) From my emotionally emergency parents who would freak out over everything. That's right. And you were a little kid completely. And, you know, and I'm sure uh, I talk about all of this kind of stuff a lot. And I say to everybody, and I had great parents. It's not like they were ill-intentioned at all. Um, And they parented according to the times that they lived in and according to the experiences that they had come through. And when you're four or five and your parent is having an emotional emergency, you know, once an hour, uh, you feel as a five-year-old a real state of threat because you are completely at their mercy. Well, yeah, and right, like you said, you're worried that this connection is being broken. Like they are so out of their minds that if I need this person for this connection to survive, like you said, like this is hard. This is now it's my emergency too. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and neural plasticity then yeah. What do you say about your like, um, do you have a high, like a heightened alert center when you grow up like this? You have a heightened amygdala, like what happens in your brain? Yeah. So in the first couple of years of life, your brain is forming roughly one million new neural connections per second. So think about the explosive exponential growth. It's, it's um, pun intended, mind blowing. <laughs> no, wonder my, no wonder my no wonder my my oldest is so much more emergency heightened because of when she was young, I was like, you know, so nervous. Right. Yeah. And so they upload it. And Mm -hmm. if you think about, so neuroplasticity is the brain's openness to external influence. And the more explosive brain growth is, which, you know, it's so explosive in those uh, very early years. Um, And the human brain doesn't stop growing until somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age, a little earlier in that time frame for girls, a little later for boys. So you still got time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And what happens then, if you think about, like, think about a, a young child who's upset their uh, emotional center in their brain fires up. And then if they're responded to by a big person full of swagger, who's got lots of compassion and, and, you know, more often than not is able to meet the need, then they calm the child down. The child fires up, the big person calms them down. It's what we call co-regulation. And, you know, thousands of repetitions later, the child eventually comes into their own capacity for internal self regulation. Yeah. But if they have a different kind of experience, then what the brain is practicing being good at is the child fires up and then the big person loses their chisel and then the child fires up a little bit more. Right. And so the brain then gets good at being fired up, not so good at being settled back down. Yeah. Oh, it's all so sad. (gasps) 
And if it happened this way, then it had to happen this way. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. And it's never, ever too late to get it turned around. Even as a grown-up, you can um, you, uh, have a good childhood, right? So it's right. never too late to go back in time and just kind of recreate that for yourself. And certainly, you know, if any of your listeners have teens and they're listening to this and they're like, oh, no, <laughs> is no. it too late? Never too late. It's not. I just had a client who had a 14-year-old son and they were so disconnected. And we introduced the idea of just a special time. And he was like, I'm not for three weeks. He said, I won't do it. And finally, he started doing it. And it brought them so much closer. And he became so much more connected and kind and loving. And I was like, you can do it at this age. You really can. They really just want connection. Yeah, especially yeah. in the teen years. You know, they're, yeah. the brain is in an interesting um, spot in the teen years. It's kind of flipping itself inside out. And yeah. a lot of, you know, uh, it's a big step towards, um, like, individuation and becoming one's own person. And that's actually really terrifying for kids. Yeah, It's like stepping off into the abyss and hoping that it all works out. So they really need their big people around. Yeah. Um, I'm always saying to parents, don't retire too soon. <laughs> No. Gig because they might walk and talk like, you know, adults, but they really are still children. They so need us. I know that now my daughter is 15 and I have one who will be 12. And it's like, I need to be there for them. They need the connection, even though they're telling me they don't. I know they do. And I feel like they're, they're going, what did Dr. Dan Siegel said something like, they're going through all these firsts, like the yeah. first time they're romantically attracted to somebody or the first time they try drugs or alcohol or the first time they, you know, go out on their own with their friends. All these things are scary and hard yeah. and they don't have anybody to talk to them about. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad a big and thing. scary. It's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. It's a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how um, Maggie Dent, uh, my good friend in Australia, uh, she talks about they need lighthouses. Mm. They don't need grownups who are jumping into the storm of adolescence with them. Mm. They need grownups who are showing up as the lighthouses, the ones who make it safe to talk about those things where you're never wrong. Well, I think that brings us back to the punishments. So if you live in a household where if you're a child and a teenager, especially and you live in a household where there are no punishments, then, then you cannot feel judged when you go to your parents and you will come to them because nothing's off limits. Anything goes. And so they can confide in you. Whereas I think children who are punished into their teens might be more reclusive and might not want to share with their parents because they feel judged or that they will be in trouble. Mm. They will 100% be more reclusive and they will have to lie as a method of self-preservation or conceal the truth or whatever it is. My oldest boy who will be 17 um, next month. How did that And, you know, it's been such a, I've said at every stage along the way, this one's my favorite. It's been so incredible to watch him as a teenager who um, he just, we've never had the bumps in the road that, I mean, we've had some small ones, but he's just an open book. He comes to me about all of the things that he needs to come to me about. There's never been an issue uh, in terms of following the rules or being able to kind of manage those expectations. He genuinely, and he's, you know, a popular kid that's kind of living the regular teen life, but he genuinely desires to be good for me. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so 
it's so important because you see so many ruptured relationships with teens and parents because everyone's so misunderstood in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Esme just came in and she said, I didn't do my assignment for math. And I was like, oh, well, that's okay. And she's like, I totally forgot. And I'm like, well, it's going to be okay. She's like, well, I just thought I'd tell you. Okay, bye. And I'm like, you know, like, she just wanted to tell me that she didn't do it. And I, I don't care, you know, and it's so much easier that she can just have a soft place to tell me. And she, she could have not told me. She could have concealed it. I would have never known, but she wanted to tell me. That's right. And it just feels good. It's a lovely place to be the um, the soft landing and the launching pad, you yeah. know, where they get to see both both those pieces in you. And and the other side of that as parents is for us to have, um, you know, as much as we need to have reasonable developmental expectations of our young children, have reasonable expectations of our teens too, and be reasonable with them. You know, rules that are rules just because, well, that probably doesn't fly with you as a as a person. It's not going to fly with your teen either. No. And so, you know, Byron Katie says we can argue with reality, but we'll be wrong only 100% of the time. And one of the things that I've really sat with as I watch my boys go through their adolescent years is the idea as a parent to not be arguing with reality. Okay, this is how it's going to go. I'm making your peace with that. Yeah. And picking your picking what it what where do you really need to want your rules and your boundaries and your limits to be around your kids because as me wants to stay out till midnight if I know where she is I think that's totally fine and I try not to have too many restrictions around her because by the way they find a way to do what they want to do that's right that's right and you get to watch them they'll there'll be some missteps as they extend into that independence. That's where you get to be the soft landing. And then you get to uh, reconsider that as a parent. Okay. So that tells me something really valuable. It Mm -hmm. tells me that they needed a little more support around meeting that boundary or that expectation. And so it's on me now to step forward and provide a reinforcement of the boundary or whatever it is. Um, So I'm giving them that support. It's kind of like making sure the guardrails are on the bridge. So as they cross it, they feel safe. I like how you say there will be missteps because I think that we have this idea, like if I'm really strict with my child, especially as a teenager, they're not going to try drugs. They're not going to try sex. They're not going to, you know, do all these things, but that's part of growing up and, just because you say that you have the rules around it doesn't mean it's going to keep them from doing it. It's just going to keep them from telling you that they're doing it. And so I think that, you know, just having this idea that they're going to make mistakes and the mistakes are okay. Yeah. God knows we make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, that, are they okay? They're actually an essential part of healthy development. If it was always all sunshine and roses, there would be no growth. You have to experience challenge in order to experience growth. And so the missteps must occur. In the absence of the missteps, they can't, they don't really put together, you know, how life goes. In the absence of the missteps, they actually miss out on opportunities for brain development that'll eventually have them being more regulated emotionally as adults. And so the missteps will happen and they must happen. Yeah. I think that's part of this whole, like people like to call it helicopter parenting or Mm -hmm. bulldozer parenting, where we 
take all the obstacles out of the way because we don't want our child to misstep because right. it's hard on them and then it's hard on us and it's too dysregulating. And when we do that, I think you're right. It's like you're missing out on all these opportunities to learn and grow. And then they go into adulthood not having all of this resiliency that they have. Yeah. You know, they have a lack of resiliency in order to get over the, whatever's challenging later on. And then we wonder what went wrong. <laughs> I did everything. That's right. I took everything out. I made everything perfect. I curated the perfect life. Now, why are you so upset? <laughs> That's right. But I think that is our gen- my generation of parenting is, you know, and the, the, the folks like just below me, that is the idea is just to curate these perfect, you know, childhoods where they have all the right activities and they're doing just the right things and it's almost too, it's almost too much because there's no room for failure. Yeah. And you know, it's an ironic thing, especially for you and I to talk about given um, the lives that we each come from. I I think in large part, the parenting industry (laughs) has created this misconception of uh, even an ability or even the idea that we ought to approach a perfect childhood for our children, you know, and, and parents who become from well-intentioned places, these massive information consumers <laughs> about how to do it all just right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's not meant to go that way. Childhood is meant to be chaotic and messy and mm-hmm. lovely and incredible and bring you to your knees, difficult and yeah. delicious all at once. <laughs> yeah. And parenting too, right? Just along with them. That's it. That's Brings right. you to your knees, mostly. <laughs> we grow ourselves in order to show up and grow them. Oh, that's so lovely. I love that one. Mm-hmm. Any last things? Any last comments? You know, um, I like to leave parents with a mantra. And I wrote about it in Discipline Without Damage. And then developed it a little bit more deeply. So maybe um, that's the last thing I'll share. The mantra is see it then feel it, then be it. Because everybody wants to know, what do I do? What do I do when my kid does this? What do I do when my kid does that? And I actually have no idea. Because I don't know you and I don't know your kid and I don't know the fight that you had with your husband at the dinner table last night. And I don't know that the dog died last month. And like, I don't know any of those things. So I can't actually, from a a place of heart-forward humanity, tell you what to do. Yeah. Rather, the question needs to be, how do I be? when my child is struggling. So you see the behavior, see it. Then you get behind the behavior, you feel it for the child. You actually get inside their hearts. You look at at the world through their eyes. You understand where it is that they are coming from. See it, feel it. And then you will be for the child what it is that they need in that moment because you've landed in a heart-filled kind of space for them. The challenge is that to feel it for your kid you also need to be feeling it for yourself. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Otherwise, your programs get in the way. So it's see it, then feel it you, feel it your kid, be it. And the doing comes from the being. So get focused on being, yeah. and the rest of it falls into place. That just made me breathe deeply. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like, oh, I can... I can breathe. I can be calm through this because I don't have to just rush to fix it. Yeah. We get to just be. I like that. That was so good, Vanessa. Yay. (laughs) Thank you. 
Thank you. I so appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you? So I am on Instagram, Dr. Vanessa LaPointe. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, uh, Dr. V LaPointe, I think. Isn't that terrible? I don't know offhand. Um, And drvanessalapointe.com is my website with links to my shop and all of the things there. So um, I would love for people to join the conversation. Yes, please. And get her books. They're lovely. They really are helpful and anecdotal and just make you feel like you're not alone. I really like them. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll see you really soon. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time.